0: Welcome to the Sunset Community Church podcast. You're listening to sermon audio from our Sunday morning services. For more information about Sunset Community Church, visit us online at sunsetcommunity.church. I can tell that it is daylight savings because the sun still hasn't risen, right? After these last few days of beautiful weather. Uh, If this is your first week with us, Uh, whether online or in person here this morning, we're in a series that we've uh, called Kingdom Come. And this uh, series title is based on something that Jesus said uh, at the beginning of his ministry. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And his whole ministry, teaching ministry would be oriented around this proclamation, repent being mean meaning to have a change of mind, a change of direction. Really, he's calling people to do a change of life. And this idea of the kingdom of heaven coming near is that that what God's heart and design for humanity has always been was gonna begin to be restored through the work of Jesus. This is also, we get this series title also from a line that we all just prayed together a few minutes ago from the Lord's Prayer. Uh Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We can make it even more personal and say in Renton as it is in heaven, in Burien, in Kent, in Skyway, wherever you live. You can make it even more personal and say in my family, in my workplace, in my own life, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So this is the kind of theme of this particular series that we're in. Uh, And when we look at Jesus' ministry, there was always an urgency in it. Now part of that is because he knew his time was short. He had lived for over 30 years, but his actual public ministry was just a few years long. And so when Jesus started with this call to repent it brought with us this urgency and then it continued throughout his ministry. Everybody that he interacted with, no matter their station in life, he had a message for them. And he brought that message with this sense of urgency. But the urgency of Jesus' message to repent didn't end with his death and with his resurrection and with his ascension to heaven. This same urgency that Jesus displayed was then given to his followers, the early church. And we see this historically. We see people that that are changed by Jesus. They respond to his call to repent and then they go. Like everything in their life then becomes oriented around the mission of Jesus proclaiming this coming kingdom. Now in our country, in our time, I think it's safe to say that the urgency of the coming kingdom of Jesus has been muted. And I think it's been muted because we are a culture that seeks comfort above all else. Everything we orient our lives around tends to be about how can I feel good? How can I be okay? How can I have things and people and whatever it would be in my life in a way that allows me to go, ah, life is good. So when Jesus, when we hear these words today, repent, what does it stir within us? If you're a Christian, maybe you're like, yeah, I've heard that before. Agree. If you're not Christian, you're like, whoa, whoa, what is this about? But whatever you are, there's a natural inclination in our heart to kind of push that call, that urgency to the side a little bit. For some of us, this last year has changed that, as we've had to face our own mortality and the reality that the stock market is not where our hopes lie, or that the president is not where our hopes lie, or even our own health may not be where our hopes should lie. And so as we consider the message of Jesus, do we feel that urgency today? Some of you have lost loved ones, some that had never responded to the call of Jesus, Maybe you felt that urgency even more. What's our role as a follower of Jesus today? Do we feel that urgency? Well, what can help or hinder our mission as a Christian? And so these are the questions that we wade through. These are what we're confronted with in Jesus' own words. And remember last week, we talked about, the last couple of weeks, we talked about identity and how the culture says, You are what you do. You are what you have. You are what you innately desire within you. This is who you are. Is this true? No, it's not. When we looked at, if we believe what the Bible says about our identity as an image bearer of God, then there is nothing we can do to add more value inherently to our lives. We are completely valuable as is, as God designed and created us to be. So your position at work, your marital status, the things you have, they don't make you more valuable. Even though in our culture we use that term, right? What's that person worth? What's their net worth? But that's not where our our identity and our value comes from. No, each of us has a unique God-designed role To play in the kingdom of God. And so it's in our repentance, our turning to Jesus, that we are then led into our purpose. And so depending on when you place your faith in Jesus, these purposes that God has for you take shape in different contexts. If if you're a young person right now and you're a follower of Jesus and you still live in your parents' house, guess what? God has a purpose for you right now within the age and the space that you're in. And it's probably more than video games, right? Like those things aren't bad, but God probably has an actual a bigger purpose for who you are in this season of your life, whether you're 12 or 20. If you go to school, Is it just to go to school or might there be a kingdom purpose that you have in the school that you attend? If you are in the workplace, the work that you do, whether you're a bricklayer or a tech bro, has a specific purpose to it that can reflect this coming kingdom nature. And even as we'll talk about today and next week, even your marital status has a unique kingdom purpose to it. So as we continue to think through the implications of what it means to be part of God's kingdom, we also are reminded that the work of Jesus is a redeeming work. What does this mean? It means that Jesus takes broken, sinful people, and he makes them whole again. You and I are a hot mess, but we are deeply loved. And so... To be sure, this process of God's redemption in our lives, it happens through Jesus. It starts in a moment when we say yes to him, but it lasts a lifetime. The more we walk with Jesus and submit our desires and our plans and our purposes to Jesus, the more he begins to redeem us and to make us more his son and his daughter. And so if you looked at the last couple of weeks, There's these areas that God transforms us in as we enter into his kingdom, as we become his sons and daughters. We looked at a couple of weeks ago how this redemption starts with our identity. When we repent and we receive the life changing grace of Jesus, we move in our identity from enemy to friend, from orphan to son and daughter, from stranger to heir co-heir with Christ. And so as God begins to redeem our identity, he also does the same thing with our desires. And so last week, we looked at the design for our sexuality and how Jesus redeems our view of sex from gross to good, from idolatry to gift. And so as we continue to walk deeper into this kingdom transformation, This morning, we're going to look at another topic that I think is often overlooked in the church. We're going to ask that question, how does the kingdom of God affect my singleness? If you are unmarried this morning. And ultimately, what we're doing is we're asking that question that's in the subtitle of our our, our series. What happens when we let Jesus rule and reign over our marital status? Now, before you married folks check out and start scrolling your Facebook feed, uh, let me first say to you, next week we're going to ask the same question of you. How does your being married affect your relationship with Jesus and this idea of him reigning? But I want you married folks to also listen this morning because the church has often elevated marriage as some sort of higher spiritual plane, right? Like oh, you can, you'll, you'll better follow Jesus when you are married. And in doing that, we've, I think, even been guilty of creating some sort of spiritual hierarchy in the church, that if you are married, you can attain these things. But if you're single, well, wait till you get married. And maybe we don't explicitly say that, but we certainly imply that by the way that we talk and we interact with single folks in the church. And so this morning, we want to look at what does the Bible say about this? And If God can use any season in my life, any situation I'm in for His purposes, whether I'm a 12-year-old at home or a 22-year-old single person, then He certainly can use me now and He has a purpose for me. So let me tell you a little bit about the destination before we jump into the scriptural journey. First of all, instead of thinking about uh, of our marital status as a key part of our identity, single, married, God wants us to view it Instead, as one context that we fulfill our purpose out of. And that out of our purpose, our design, we're to bring glory to God. In other words, we're to make Him known, whether single or married. And so, with that understanding, some people will get married. And they're given the gift of marriage. And some people won't. They're given the gift of of singleness and also we have to acknowledge that some people are single and they don't want to be. Maybe you've been divorced or you've been widowed or maybe you're just young and you're like I can't wait. So this morning for those of you who are single we're going to ask and no matter what that reason is we're going to ask that question what is God's design for my singleness and I want you to know that just as God's redemption is a constant process in our life so are his purposes. His purposes continue to be revealed to us, and he continues to invite us to walk into them. And so that means right now, in your singleness, I'm looking at a few of you in the eyes, he has a purpose that he wants you to walk in. So this morning, we're going to look at one primary text, and we're going to see how this idea of being single played out in a church just like ours. And in a city, honestly, that wasn't too radically different than ours. So go ahead and grab your Bibles this morning. We're going to turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, it's page 983, and I am not going to read this for you. So definitely turn there. You're going to read this together by yourself. If if you're at home, you can read it out loud with your family if you want. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, page 983 in the Blue Bibles in the pews if you want a shortcut. Before you read it, I'm just going to have you read the first seven verses just to kind of set a little bit of a context here. We're talking about singleness, but I want to preface this with the opening verses uh, are really centered on marriage. So try and push through this because where we land is or where Paul lands in these first seven verses is where we're going. So go ahead and read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 7 on your own, and then I will bring us back in just a moment. All right, heads are coming up. Some of you are faster readers than others. Okay, so as I said, this sounds a lot more like marriage and about singleness, so it sets the context really for the whole chapter. Um, the first thing we, we notice is that clearly this uh, church, like ours, has some questions. And their questions are about their relationships. And their questions are about their relationships in the context of following Jesus. And the reason they have these questions is because many of them have come out of kind of this pagan thinking, this pagan way of living. And the church that they're in, I mean the city that they're in, is certainly not a Christian city by any means. And so they're asking Paul this question. Look at verse 1 again. He says, now for the matters you wrote about. What does that mean? That means they wrote him a letter first before he wrote this letter. And they're saying, what do we do about these things? These issues of marriage and these issues of sex and, and how we're to live as, as Christians in this new kingdom that we're a part of. And it's understandable that they would ask these questions, right? Because there, this isn't a group of people who have deep roots, Uh, of following Jesus or some history and they don't have resources they can draw on and podcasts they can listen to to find out the answers to these questions. They've never done this before. They've never followed Jesus. They've never thought of their entire lives as being aligned with this new kingdom. And so they write to Paul and they say, what do we do? How do we interact? And part of the reason they're probably asking these questions is because these outside pressures in, in Corinth, you've got one group. They're, they're called ascetics, and they place this high spiritual value on denying your desires. Are you hungry? Don't eat. If you have a sexual desire, better not have sex, not even with your wife or your husband. And so they're, they're wrestling with, is that how we're to live? Like, are we supposed to just completely deny all things about ourselves? And on the other hand, they've got folks in their culture saying, if you have a desire, just fulfill it. With whoever, whenever, wherever, however you need to, if the desire is there, it must need to be fulfilled. And in the middle of this, they're going, "What does being a follower of Jesus look like in this?" And and if we're honest, like we're in the same boat today, we could probably more relate to the second category of folks that the pressures in our culture and in general the. City of Corinth was very self-indulgent, and so there are a whole lot of questions that kind of are surfacing in the church as it relates to that, and so are we as a culture. Like, everything that you're marketed and advertised is about fulfilling a desire or a need in your life, and so if we're much like Corinth, if we're not wading into these issues from a Jesus perspective, we're just going to Except what the culture says, well, that must be it. If the church isn't talking about it, then I'll just take my cues from the culture. And so maybe some of you this morning, as it relates to what we talked about last week, your sexuality, or maybe this idea of being single, you've never thought about it from a Christian perspective. You've just thought it's another stop on the way to having my needs and desires met. So where Paul ultimately lands, as he talks about marriage relationships, uh, where he ultimately lands in the text is as relevant for us today as it was back then. And it's rooted in our life as kingdom citizens. Look at that last verse again, verse 7. This is a clue of where Paul's going to go for a lot of the next rest of this chapter. He says, I wish that all of you were as I am. What is Paul? He's single. He's not married. He says, I wish all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. So immediately Paul frames both marital status and sexuality in a different context than the culture typically presents it. He frames it as a gift a gift that God gives to individuals. And so he's basically saying, he'll go on to say, that being a celibate single or a sexually active spouse, both of these are a gift. Both are a gift. So here's the question to all the single Christians in the room. Do you feel that being single and as scriptures would call you to be celibate, do you feel like that's a gift? Honestly, growing up in the church, I never thought that it was. Uh, and maybe that's because there's some things, again, that are implied or spoken or overtly taught, or even just the emphasis. I'm guilty of this. I'm, I'm married. I have a bunch of kids. My world is oriented around my particular gift, And that's often the case with pastors and leaders in churches. And so we present that as the norm for everybody. And all my illustrations are going to be about what my kids do and what I'm experiencing in my family. And it begins to bubble up, whether intentional or not. And marriage is often equated in the church to equal ultimate fulfillment. Like once you get there, ah. Some of you are shaking your heads right now because you've been married a long time. (laughs) And you know it's not true. But because of that, as a single person, you may feel like less of a person if you're not married. You may have got the, oh, wait until you get married comment to somebody. Or people might ask you, if you've been single a long time, so do you want to get married? As if something's wrong with you. The reality is that sometimes we don't present this as a gift because we're only viewing it through our particular gift that God's given us. The other reason many of us may not feel like being single is a gift is because we really want to be married, right? And that's okay, too. So why should being single even be considered a gift? Well, Paul continues, if your Bible's still open, you can follow with me. I will put this one up on the screen. He says this, Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. Now some scholars would say, is this an indication that Paul had been married and that maybe he lost his wife? We don't know for sure. But we know he's single. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Probably don't have to explain to you what he means there, but we'll circle back to that statement in just a minute. So let's consider these two statements in the context of this whole conversation. And then, from the context of our identity as sons and daughters, as followers of Jesus, as participants of his kingdom. So first, why would it be good, as Paul says, to be unmarried, to be single? How could that be a gift? Now, first of all, first century that this was written in, it was pretty counterculture in the time that it was written to be a single person in the Roman Empire. For either a man or a woman to remain unmarried was just really not that common. Definitely not for young folks, but even not that common for those that had lost a spouse to death or maybe had been divorced. In Paul's day, marriage was pretty common and folks even got married a lot younger than they do now. And in many cases, those marriages were arranged marriages. So it happened very young. So this statement that Paul makes was counterculture then. We can't just say it's, well, it was only because that was a thing then. It wasn't true. So we have to keep that in mind. And then as Paul will lead us into one of the things that we find out about marriage or being single is that marriage does not complete us. As followers of Jesus, it's not a half a person and a half a person come together in marriage and then you've got, oh, this whole person. That's not the math that Jesus uses in his kingdom. It is one whole person called and redeemed and loved by God meeting another whole person called and redeemed and loved by God coming together to make one whole person. So in God's math, it's one plus one equals one in marriage. Now, culture may lead us to believe differently, but Scripture doesn't do this. I remember when I was in high school, the end of my high school, a movie came out called Jerry Maguire with Tom Cruise. And in that movie, there was this definitive scene that all the girls in my high school just like swooned over and shed tears over. And it was in this scene that Tom Cruise, and I think it was Renee Zellweger, the, the guy and girl in the movie that were fall, falling in love. And the, the line was, you complete me. And, and my whole generation thought, oh, that's what I need. Like this emptiness I feel in me, this, these desires, this dysfunction, this broke. it's all going to be better when I marry somebody someday. So what happens when one broken person and one broken person come together? You have two broken people. Commentator Michael Green makes what sounds like a radical statement in our culture today about marriage, but is actually in agreement with the scriptures that we've been reading. He says this. First, he asks the question, Could I... Be equally useful to the Lord if married, or would it inevitably curtail my usefulness to Him? He then comments, The quality of time available for Christian involvement may be reduced once we are married, but its quality may be enhanced. At all events, I have no right to marry unless I have honestly faced the question of the impact marriage will have on my Christian life and service." I don't know about you, but that was convicting for me because I wasn't really thinking about that when I met Jessica. I was thinking, she's really good looking. I would like to spend the rest of my life with her because she's really good looking. As I got to know her more, it became a little deeper than that, and it's much deeper than that now. But do we consider these things as we think about the station in life that we're in, whether single or married, how does where God has me now in this season impact my life? Being able to follow him and make him known. So Paul's words here reflect a radical view of marital status as it relates to those who put their faith in Jesus. Now instead of it being uh, part of my identity, it's actually just part of my purpose. Instead of being about my fulfillment, it's about making Jesus known, whether I'm single or whether I'm married. And with this in mind, Paul will go on to say in this chapter that it's actually better to stay single because it gives you the ability to stay solely focused on following God. This is not what I would have wanted to hear when I was a young man. But it's something I think we should talk about as a church. He goes on in verse 32. He says this, I would like you to be free from concern. but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. So this is not a prescription. Uh, this Everybody should be single. It is a description. It's what life looks like whether you're married or whether you're single. This is basically Paul's I'm just saying comment. I'm just saying. <laughs> if you want undivided, lots of time, serve the Lord with everything that you are, it's going to be a little bit easier to do that as a single person. You know what? Now, having been married 17 years, 18 this summer, uh, I actually understand this. (laughs) Uh, The very first time I went to the country of China in 1998, those of you that know, China does not welcome missionaries they do not welcome any outside influence. They are opposed to the Christian movement within their country. And when I went, first went in 1998, uh, I brought something into the country that was illegal at the time. I brought a bunch of Bibles because you couldn't just buy a Bible in China in the late 90s. And I did that at my own risk. If I would have been found out, I could have been jailed, sent back to my own country. Who knows? Who knows? And you know what? I didn't care. (laughs) I was like, this is it. I'm doing it. If something happens, no big deal. Now i talk to 41-year-old Andrew. I might second-guess that a little bit. I got four kids at home. What would happen with my wife? Like, I get this idea, right, of what Paul's talking about. I recently just finished reading the biography of Mother Teresa. Single woman, a nun in the Catholic Church that accomplished things that I honestly, second to Jesus, I, I've never read anything that people, somebody that's accomplished things that she accomplished. The, the impact, the global impact Mother Teresa had to this day. Unreal. And as I was reading it, I thought she couldn't have done some of these things if she had been married. Just not possible. She wouldn't have had the time to do it. She wouldn't have been able to, to to really be a good wife and to do this ministry that she ended up engaging with. So I get it, but do we even think in that way about how does our marriage or our singleness affect the call that God has on our lives? Now there's imbalances in this. One imbalance is the Catholic Church has said, if you really wanna serve Jesus, you have to be single. A nun or a priest can never marry. That's, That's not what we see in scripture. The opposite of what we see in Scripture. Marriage is a gift and can be used to further God's kingdom out of that. So that's one imbalance, right? Another imbalance is what you would find in the Mormon church, who believes that there's levels in heaven and you can only get to the highest level in heaven if you're married. I mean, that's an overt teaching. So there's imbalances in that. But what we need to consider as Christians is how out of whatever God has called me to do, out of whatever marital status I am, how am I best able to make him known? And that can happen in both. So Paul says that. Hey, it would be best if you would be unmarried like I am. Then he says this other thing. But if, you, if somebody cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. This was my life verse at 17. <laughs> But again, we have to keep this in context with the idea of both singleness and celibacy. And we talked about this last week. Sex is for marriage. And marriage alone, that's God's design. So we have to keep this in mind with that and with the idea of marriage being and sex being a gift. In both cases, whether single or married, there is a God-given design and there is a need for self-control as you walk out in that God-given design. Just because you get married doesn't mean you now don't have to control yourself. And so there is in both cases a God-empowered, a spirit-empowered walking out of the call with sexual desire, God's good and holy design is that will be fulfilled exclusively in the beautiful, committed context of marriage. So yeah, if there is a strong desire in you, that could be a pretty good indicator that God is calling you to marriage. With singleness and celibacy, the restraint that must be put on sexual desire points us back to this already and not yet aspect of the kingdom of God. That one day we will all experience the truest And the best fulfillment of relational intimacy, of our deepest desires, when we get to meet God face to face, we get to be fully in his kingdom, redeemed and sinless and whole. So in both cases, in these stations of life, whether you are married or whether you're single, both are a gift. And So then you might ask the question, which one has God given to you? This is really more for the single folks, because if you're married right now, there's your answer. Okay, this is not a, a permission to get divorced sermon. <laughs> Throughout this chapter, Paul continues to focus on the different situations and the different challenges. And I encourage you to read the entire chapter of, of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. These different challenges of marriage and divorce and being a widow or widower and other aspects of this institution, these relationships. The key verse, though, in this whole conversation is found in verse 17, and I think it applies very well to us today as well. Verse 17 is kind of this linchpin verse. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them, And this is the kingdom change. This is the kingdom shift in our lives as we repent and as we turn to Jesus. What situation has God called you to? You are to live as a believer in that situation. Now in our church family, we have folks currently that are single because of a variety of factors. Some of y'all are just young. You're just young and single. Some of you have been widowed. Some of you have been divorced. Wherever you are now isn't necessarily where God is going to keep you for the rest of your life. But if you aren't sure, then here's a few practical things that you might want to do to seek God's will in this single season of singleness that you're in. First, pray to God regularly. Pray to God regularly. Ask God to show you, not the culture, please. Ask God to show you his good purposes for your life. In this very moment that you're in, this very season of life that you find yourself in, ask him to show you his purposes. And guess what? He will do that. He's a good father. He wants to make himself known to you and to walk with you in this season that you're in. So pray and ask him. Don't Google it. Look it up in Scripture. So number one, that's where we should start. Number two, remember that our desires don't always line up perfectly with God's will for our lives. Honestly, you guys, I could eat cheeseburgers every day of the week. That's a very strong desire that I have to, to deal with. That's not God's will or my, God's best for my life. Our desires don't always line up perfectly with God's will. So we always need to submit our desires to God's word and his leading in our lives. And remember, God's word and his leading in our lives are not going to contradict each other. So we need both of those. As we seek him in prayer, and we feel he's moving us in a direction, his word, his unchanging word, is the test, the barometer by which we test those things. And then lastly, also know that sometimes your desires do point you to God's will for your life. Sometimes your desires are good and they are an indicator of where God is leading you. So these are the things, pray regularly and ask God to show you his purposes. Remember that sometimes your desires will lead you astray, so you need to submit those to God's leading and his word, but also sometimes those desires will take you exactly where God wants you to go. So church, as we consider these things, may our vision of singleness be God's vision of singleness. May God's, our vision of marriage be God's vision of marriage. If you are married, Good. How is God using your marriage to make you more like Him? How is your marriage reflecting something of the kingdom of God? If you aren't married, good. Yes, really, it is. How is your singleness making you more like Jesus? How is your singleness reflecting The kingdom of God, this already happening, but yet not yet fulfilled kingdom of God. And so single people, don't sit on the couch waiting. Instead, engage with life. Pursue the things of God now. And as you do, you'll find God's good purposes for your life. Now, as a single person, you don't have to wait. And then while you're doing that, let me encourage you, single people, learn how to foster deep friendships. The intimacy that will last in your marriage is an intimacy that you can learn how to build as a single person. My wife is my best friend. This is not a cliche. When I'm hanging out with some of my really good friends, one of the thoughts in my head often is, I wish my wife were here with me. She would really enjoy this too because I love her that much. And so single people, you can enjoy a similar type of intimacy with friends. Whether God calls you to that season for a short time or for your entire life. So learn how to foster those friendships well. And church family, let's help with that. Let's also engage in friendships together, whether married or single. Let's create a culture that values the unique seasons that God has each of us in. And let's not assume anything about a single person. Let's love them where they're at. Let's encourage them in their purpose. And let's walk with them as they walk out the gifts that God has given them. Because there are no second-class citizens in God's kingdom, whether they're married or single. It's only in Jesus that we find fulfillment and purpose and peace. Amen? Amen. Amen. This is what Jesus offers us so that we may reflect His kingdom. So let's stand together and pray. And I want to pray specifically this morning for those of you that are single. Again, whether you are young and single, whether you're older and single, whether you've been divorced or widowed, I want to pray for you this morning that you would see where God has you, how He sees it. So let's pray together. Father, we need to be reoriented because the culture that we're in is trying to lead us away from your truth. It's trying to sell us something that won't fulfill. It's trying to get us to chase the next thing that we don't have. And this is true for our marital status. And so I want to pray this morning for those in the room, those in our church, online, that are single. I pray that you would speak purpose to them, Lord God. That they would know that they are full and complete in you no matter their marital status but that they would see where they are at Lord as an opportunity to make you known to live as kingdom citizens and so Lord would you bless them in this time would you speak peace and vision to them in this time and Lord if there are desires in their heart would you lead them lovingly to your good purposes for them we pray these things in Jesus name amen